0: Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming, my goodness. Um, Today's guest is Christina Saffron, who's a co-founder of Project Heal, um, which we'll talk about a little later, and um, also a co-founder of the new virtual eating disorder treatment startup Equip. Tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Thanks so much
1: for having me, Mimi. It's so fun to reconnect on here after meeting in person a couple of years ago and following your journey. Um, so I'm Christina Safran, uh, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Equip, pronouns are she, her. Um, I am 29 years old and feel like I've been in the eating disorder field for my whole entire life. So diagnosed with anorexia at 10 years old, struggled throughout my adolescence at 15, uh, really upon learning that 80% of the 30 million Americans with eating disorders don't get treatment, said, this is horrible. I have to do something about this Um, and started Project Heal. I co-founded it with Leanna Rosamond when we were about 15 years old. And our initial kind of thesis was to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment. That was the access issue we saw at that time. Uh, Did tremendous, incredible work with that organization. We've funded, you know, hundreds of folks to get treatment for their eating disorders that they couldn't afford. Um, And also had opened 40 chapters across the country, uh, developed one of the first evidence-based peer support Programs for folks with eating disorders, uh, but really my my catalyst for moving over to Start Equip was seeing over the last two decades that our research has continued to improve dramatically. We now have evidence based outpatient treatments that work really well, and you know I started Project Heal in 2008, which is the same year that the mental health Parity act was passed. And it's a great law at a high level. It says mental health has to be covered at the same rate as physical health, but you know, like many things, there are always unintended consequences. And I think the one that we saw in eating disorders and also substance use was that for the private equity market said, Ooh, this is a hot growth industry. This area is going to be reimbursed. And so you see a lot of money going into residential facilities for both substance use and eating disorders. Um, and unfortunately, we just don't have evidence to suggest that they are effective for folks. They're incredibly expensive, and we we just don't have the outcomes to say that they're they're contributing to good outcomes. And frankly, um, I think they have some real kind of iatrogenic negative effects for especially kids and adolescents, which we can which we can talk about. So just realizing more and more people have access to residential care, but no quality outpatient care. And as you probably know, I mean, outpatient eating disorder providers almost never are a network with insurance and can charge $250, $300 an hour because the demand so outpaces the supply. So it just always struck me as like, this doesn't make any sense. and actually uh, had entered into conversations with a couple of insurance companies around our peer support program that we had started at Project Heal. And you know they were interested in reimbursing for it. So it kind of just naturally got me into conversations with them where I was like, glad you're reimbursing for peer support, absolutely part of the standard of care, but like, People also need good outpatient treatment, uh, clinical treatment. And right now that's completely inaccessible, but you are reimbursing for things that don't work as well. And they said, you're, you're kind of right. And if you built it, we will come. And so that is what I did about two and a half years ago, got, or two years ago, got my marching orders. Um. And so what we do at Equip Health is, really it's the same mission, to make eating disorder treatment accessible to all people um, with the important qualifier that it needs to be treatment that works, right? Quality Mm -hmm. treatment. It's not enough to give people access to any treatment. And so we do this by partnering with insurance companies. It's core to our mission to make this accessible. Um, So both commercial payers, Medicare, Medicaid, and we build their families. Right now we are working with, kind of adolescents ages six to 24 will be expanding to adults next year, but we build families fully virtual care teams of five people. So a therapist, a dietitian, an MD, we actually have both medical doctors and then also psychiatrists and then a peer mentor. So somebody who's had lived experience of their own eating disorder and a family mentor. So someone who's helped their loved one in the recovery process. Um, excitingly, we've negotiated with the insurance companies to cover a full year of treatment. Um, we, we know that the literature actually says it takes seven years to fully recover from your eating disorder. We think we can do better than that <laughs> to, to do well on our promise that we're really trying to say this is the last eating disorder treatment that folks will need. We really do need a full year to be able to work on the eating disorder and all the, also all the comorbidities that we know are are core to it. Um, it's completely virtual and the outcomes that we're seeing so far, we've enrolled about 130 patients. We're active in New York, California, Texas, and New Jersey with more states coming soon. Um, and, and it's just really been exciting to see uh, the progress.
0: That's phenomenal. I am so excited and getting like more eager to hear about it. And um, I'm curious to hear about the research base and the outcomes-driven um, kind of uh, way that Equip works. What got you interested in kind of that research base?
1: Yeah. So I think it really goes back to you know starting Project Heal at 15 to you know spend thousands of dollars on treatment and seeing that treatment wasn't always super effective, right? People relapsing and saying, what is this? So learning pretty early on in my career, you know, started this at 15, got into college, started studying psychology, realized like, ooh, a lot of the treatments that we're delivering have zero evidence base for them, right? Um, And so it always got me really interested in how do we develop and disseminate quality treatments? Actually, I I live in San Diego because I always thought I would get my PhD in clinical psychology um, and, and really contribute to the research in that way. So moved down here because I thought I was going to get my PhD with my co-founder of Equip, Erin Parks. And basically by the time I moved down, she said, oh, I think you can have more impact kind of partnering with academia. And then five years later, I was like, Erin, I think academia is also moving too slow. We need to try a whole <laughs> new approach. Um, but so it always got me really interested in in that area. And I think you know over the past two decades, we do have much more compelling research that primarily eating disorders are have intensive uh genetic and neurobiological underpinnings and the way that i really like to talk about it is it's not that people with eating disorders are choosing not to eat choosing to binge and purge choosing to engage in you know choosing not to engage in pro-health behaviors it's that their brains aren't letting them. You know, this as someone in recovery, like you are fighting your brain actively every single day. Part of the disorder is one, not knowing how sick you are, and two, not wanting to get better. Um, and then beyond this, you know, many of us have heard for many, many years this is not something you get better from. This is something you'll always struggle with. Many of us have never met anybody who's recovered. So it's just an incredibly hard process. And Frankly, it's not only ineffective, but as I think about it, kind of cruel to ask people to deal with this as an individual illness when you're fighting your brain six, you know, multiple times a day and facing your greatest fear every single day. You really do need supports to help structure the home environment for pro-health behaviors. Um, so family-based treatment is the leading evidence-based treatment for adolescents, young adults, and emerging evidence for adults um, uh, as, as the gold standard eating disorder treatment. And, and really what that does is just bring in the healthy people in a household and like, whatever family means for you. We've worked with foster parents. We've worked with a theater teacher. So we can really get creative around what is your what is the village around you that's going to help you to structure your home environment for pro-health behaviors. Um, and bringing in those people to to help do that work and help make recovery a little bit easier. And while we know over the last two decades that this has been the gold standard and, you know, multiple randomized control trials, um, it's been shown to work virtually, it's been shown to work actually even when, uh, if it's a teen or child, even if they never participate, if you just do it with the parents, it actually has the same outcomes, which is pretty exciting. But unfortunately, it's just been really poorly disseminated. I think this is pretty normal in academia, like typically here it takes 17 years or something to sort of trickle down from the ivory tower to the community setting. We absolutely see that in eating disorders. And then the other thing is that it's while it's the gold standard and 86% of folks see positive outcomes from it, only 47% of folks actually go into full remission, full recovery. So it leaves a lot to be desired, right? <laughs> that means that 53% of folks are not going into full recovery. Um, and so, really, our treatment approach is based on myself, my co founder, Aaron Parks of UC San Diego, who is one of the co founders and co directors of, of UC San Diego's Eating Disorder Clinic, where just as a sidebar, People would literally fly from all over the country, all over the world, to get treatment at UC San Diego, and like they're not doing anything magical. It's just evidence-based treatment, which shows you how hard it is to find. But it's really based on our experiences talking to families who had, you know, good experiences with FBT and also really bad experiences with FBT, and saying sort of what more did you need? And there are a couple of ways that our treatment program looks looks different, and we call it sort of FBT plus. So one of one of those is that traditional FBT is delivered once a week with a therapist. Um, And we've heard resoundingly from a lot of families that that just wasn't enough support. And so this five person care team that people get a nutritionist, an MD, a peer mentor, and a family mentor—really having that wraparound support, you know, when you need it in the moment. People have access to unlimited sessions, messaging with their care team, and so you know, you, you you go out and you have a really bad experience. You can message, you can go on your phone and message your peer mentor for in the in the moment support, and that's really important. Um, also, importantly, is that like all of those folks are on the same page. So what traditionally happens. One, it's pretty rare to find an, an entire team of eating disorder specialists, but even if you can find that team, we typically hear from families that, you know, they weren't on the same page. The therapist would be like, you need to gain five pounds. The nutritionist would be like, you need to gain 15 pounds. The, the PCP is like, this is a phase and like family stay out of it, right? Everyone is not on the same page and that's where the eating disorder really wins. So having that too is incredibly important. Um, the second thing is that it's fully virtual, right? We we um, That was our model from the very beginning. We actually started this pre-COVID to be fully virtual because access is really our North star, right? And it's hard enough to find good quality treatment teams in New York or San Francisco, let alone other places in the country. But you know, we probably would have told you two years ago, um, if you can find an in-person treatment team, do it. It'll be better. And we have totally changed our tune over the last two years. And I think that's for a couple of reasons. So one, we talk about you can't build a life worth living if you're not living life. And I think unfortunately, a lot of our existing treatment modalities take people out of their lives and don't give them that opportunity to really build up that life worth living. Um, Two is just like, it's a lot of appointments, right? Especially for working parents, those with other kids, it's a lot of hassle. And then three, and perhaps the most exciting is that this virtual format has really allowed families to bring their entire village to treatment, right? So when I was going through FBT, it was rare that both my parents could come cause they both worked. And now we have, you know, not only two parents but like aunt and uncle and grandma and theater teacher like really does enable families to bring their entire village which we know contributes to better outcomes. Um, and then the final thing, and I, I think we might go further on some of these questions but um, you know, one of the issues <laughs> I mean, there are many issues in the eating disorder field, but one of the issues is that training has been so inaccessible. And so you've ended up with a field that is very homogenous. A lot of people who fit the stereotype and look like me, And obviously, we know that that's not reflective of the diversity of folks who suffer with eating disorders. So I'm sure folks listening to this podcast are pretty aware, but we know that eating disorders affect people pretty equally across race, class, ethnicity, a third of sufferers are men. Most people with eating disorders are not underweight. As the level of food insecurity in in a community rises, levels of eating disorders directly rise. But we really don't have that diversity of lived experience in traditional eating disorder treatment. And so really was important to us. I mean, one of the the big things that we do is center lived experience and outside of lived experience of eating disorders, some of those issues. So we've, we've been able to develop care teams that are composed of, you can have at least one person on your care team who identifies with an identity above and beyond an eating disorder. So whether um, you identify as a member of the BIPOC community, of the LGBT community, we have a number of trans mentors. We actually have a family mentor who was homeless living in her car when she refed her daughter for an eating disorder. And we just know that when you have that additional commonality and lived experience, um, treatment is, is is a lot more effective. Um, so really excited about that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'm wondering too about uh, chosen family. So is it always like caregivers and then also about um, adults using family-based therapy? Because you know, if people have a tumultuous relationship with their parents, can they choose those family members in treatment? Um, Are they able to, are we finding like beneficial outcomes in FBT plus?
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really fantastic question. So a couple of ways that I want to address it. The first is that, we're actually really bad at predicting who is going to do well at FBT. And so one of our tenants is like having a really wide open front door and then multiple touch points to understand, you know, if, if there are families that this isn't a good fit for. But in many cases, there are sort of misconceptions that low-income families can't do this. One-parent household families can't do this. And that's not the case at all. In many cases, actually, we find that they do better because they're um, better at figuring out how to utilize their resources and utilize their village. The second thing is that while we work with from an understanding that families do not cause eating disorders, that doesn't mean that they're not doing anything to reinforce the eating disorder, right? It doesn't mean <laughs> they're not doing anything perfect. And especially like When your child is in crisis, you know, it it can cause you to act out of your values in a lot of ways. And so operating from that standpoint, but also working with families, and this is where the family mentors come in, is incredibly important to have some of the really difficult conversations. This particularly comes up as it pertains to health at every size and fat phobia and doing a lot of education. But like how powerful to have a family mentor who says, I get it. Like I I grew up with the same set of beliefs and I have the same thing, but I had to really look at myself and say, what message does it send when I'm feeding my daughter fettuccine Alfredo and I'm sitting here eating a side salad, right? And it's been really powerful to see those relationships develop. Um, we always try as much as we can to sort of educate and work with the family and, and and change hearts and minds in that way. We've had incredible, tremendous progress on that. And in some cases, you know, we as you said, there are some families that, that aren't able to do this work. And in that case, we really work with the patient to identify other people in their lives who can help structure that home environment for pro recovery behavior. So, like I said, you know, in one case that was a teacher in another case, that was a grown sister in another case that was a college roommate. And it'll be similar when we expand to adults, right? Like it's, um, the, the, the reason behind adding in supports is the same. It's because this is a brain-based illness that is really hard to treat alone. Obviously it's easier with adolescents. And most of the research has been done on adolescents because you're under the control of your parents living at home, they're paying for you. So it looks a little bit different in, you know, the adult population and when you're not working with, with parents, but it's kind of the, the exact same dynamic. And then the final thing I'll say is that you know, while this is the approach, we really do individualize treatment for what each family needs and so can work with them on that individual basis.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's helpful to hear. I think, Um, and really interesting to think about what the definition of family even looks like, um, especially in relationship to treatment. Um, Let's talk a little about the levels of care and maybe why higher levels of care aren't working. What are you thinking about that?
1: Yeah, so... You know, I have to be honest, this is a big, this is a big reason why I started Equip. So we don't have a lot of good data to support the, you know, effectiveness of residential treatment. I think, you know, obviously in some cases it is useful and absolutely necessary, but unfortunately I think we've developed this thinking in the treatment landscape that when you have an eating disorder, you start at the highest level of care, highest intensity and work your way down. And there's just really no data to bear that out. Um, When we look to our counterparts in UK and the Australia where they don't have these residential treatment systems, um, 90% of folks are getting better at the outpatient level of care. Um, these centers cost, you know, $45,000 per month. We don't have great outcomes data, but anecdotally the relapse rate in the first year is upwards of 50% gets higher in subsequent years. And, you know, frankly, I go back to my own experience. So I always talk about, uh, I was sick before the days of the fancy residentials. I was in and out of inpatient hospitals and yet I love treatment, you know, like treatment was safe. It was easy. I didn't have to deal with my triggers, um, I was sick when I was 13 in middle school. I don't know about you, but middle school is a place I never want to go back to ever again. And so the idea of like going out and, you know, being at this place with people who get me, who understand me, I'm not dealing with my triggers. I loved it. Um, And frankly, it was after my fourth hospitalization, I started to relapse and my parents gave me a choice. They said, you can go to a residential out West for a year. You can try this new family based treatment thing. And at the time I wanted nothing more than to go to residential but I always say it was the healthiest decision I ever made to be like I just missed my entire freshman year of high school like if i miss sophomore year I might never get out of this thing um and it's been really horrifying to see people I was in treatment with now over 15 years ago who are still cycling in and out of residential treatment centers and frankly at that this point have never finished high school, have never finished college, have never held a job, have never had a real relationship, like the barriers to re-engaging in life are just so, so much higher and so much harder. And the sad thing is they've never had access to evidence-based treatment, um, which is, which is incredibly upsetting. So it's always been, you know, one of the things that I care a lot about to say, how can we get people more holistic outpatient care? Um, And, and the beauty is it's actually an opportunity to really partner with the insurance companies, because when you provide holistic, multidisciplinary outpatient care, not only do people get better, but it's actually more affordable.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, you hear that phrase often in the world of eating disorders, like in and out of treatment. And I think there's this glorification aspect sometimes where treatment sounds kind of fine at times. Like you get to be with people that you care about, like It, you know, obviously it's hard work and there's a purpose for it, but I think outpatient treatment, staying within that, um, community where you are and dealing with interactions and relationships, um, that you're going to eventually go back to is really important and critical.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then talking about families too, and this is where, you know, at the end of the day, even if you go to residential, you're going to return home to your family. So kind of regard, like we need to be preparing families to, figure out how to do it at home in real life. And I think that's a problem that it's not the same when you're in this artificial environment, away from home, away from your triggers and away from your protective factors. It's just, it's just not the same. You don't actually learn how to, how to do the work in real life.
0: Mm -hmm, Definitely. So how does it work with meal support and kind of marking down like uh, completion rates, um, group therapy? Is it, do you have group therapy kind of Tell me about that virtually. Yeah,
1: great question. So meal support is primarily done with the parents, and that's a big aspect of the FBT is that families take over all the responsibility for, um, you know, deciding what's gonna what's gonna be. Uh, plated, plated the food supervising to make sure that it's all eaten. And so a lot of that work goes on, goes on the family members. And we, we give a lot of training, a lot of support in order to really help them to do that. In some cases, we, we definitely have our peer mentors and our family mentors do some in vivo meal support. And that can be really therapeutic, especially for like challenge foods and things of that nature. And I think, um, so I think that's incredibly powerful.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um,
1: And groups, asked about groups. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We, you know, we definitely have a philosophy of not wanting to overdose people on treatment that they don't need. So definitely our philosophy is like, let's give you the right amount of treatment that you need and then say, go out, live life, build a life worth living, build up triggers, bring them back to your treatment team. We don't want people to become like too dependent on, on treatment. Um, and so instead of kind of process groups. We we, um, we have a number of like skill-based groups. Uh, so we have a weekly parent skills group. We have a dad skills group. We have a, um, a meditation group. We have a medication group to educate folks about um, the benefits that, that some of the psychotropic medications can provide. My favorite, we have a recovery stories group. So then patients and families are invited and um, uh, one of our peer mentors, or actually some of our folks at headquarters who are recovered, um, bring a challenge food and share their recovery stories, again, as that way of infusing hope and, and inspiration into everything we do. And then we actually just started a partnership with Eat, Breathe, Thrive, an awesome yoga-based program to introduce um, eating just a recovery-oriented uh, yoga and healthy movement uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our services. So really excited about that
0: that's awesome. I really love the recovery stories one and like how they're more psychoeducational and, um, yeah, really treatment dependence can be a big thing. I think in the world of eating disorders of kind of like getting so ingrained in that identity of having an eating disorder and doing recovery, um, that sometimes it's hard to detach and, and that's really helpful.
1: I think you're absolutely right about that.
0: Yeah. Um, who are we missing when we talk about eating disorders? Uh, everyone? Uh, (laughs) You know, I think
1: unfortunately, I mean, the stats are just horrifying, right? 5 million Americans generally cheer, 30 million over the course of a lifetime, 20%, only 20% get treatment. And, you know, even for those getting treatment, the treatment landscape doesn't, doesn't work very well. So, you know, even, (laughs) even folks who fit the stereotype, folks like me, aren't getting great access to treatment, certainly not anybody who falls outside of that standard stereotype of white, cis, thin, upper middle class female, right? And so we talked about this, you know, a little while back, but we know that eating disorders affect folks equally across race, class, ethnicity, a third of sufferers are men, most people with eating disorders are not underweight, the level of food insecurity in the community rises, the levels of eating disorders directly rise. Um, but unfortunately, anybody who doesn't fit that Stereotype has had disproportionately just horrible access to treatment. And, you know, in addition to access to treatment, there are additional barriers around. one diagnosis, right? I mean, if you go into a treatment center and you fit the stereotype, you're unlikely to get diagnosed. But certainly, if you don't fit the stereotype, if you don't fit the stereotype, there are existing barriers to getting that, getting that diagnosis. Um, and then there are, you know, barriers within your community. We actually, uh, we we just had a company wide sort of educational event on. Uh, well, it was on Juneteenth, but we talked about the impact of race and racism on eating disorders. And so talking about in the Black community, for example, like there's a lot of self-stigma, community stigma on sort of black girls don't get eating disorders. So you're hearing it from the medical establishment, then you're also hearing it from your family and community, which can increase it. And we know as people who suffer that it's hard enough to reach out one time for help, right? It can, it can take all of your effort to master. And so if you reach out and you're told, you know, no, this doesn't affect people in your community. You're not sick enough. Like that might be, that might leave you not reaching out for help for a number of years and continuing to struggle in silence if if you ever reach out at all. So it's incredibly, incredibly important. And then I think the final thing is, you know, in order for treatment to be effective, people have to engage in it and it needs to be safe, right? And I think it's it's really unfortunate that we've had such a homogenous field of <laughs> people who all look the same and really can't relate to the experience of others. So going back to this discussion, we have a, a black therapist who who's working with us who had an eating disorder in her teens and, you know, talked about like, I really, really wanted a black therapist. And it, I mean, it was just impossible. I just could not find um, anybody who was black and treated eating disorders. It was incredibly impossible to find. And I think for many people, it's incredibly important to be able to talk about sort of the intersectionality of, you know, your identity and your eating disorder and have people who really understand and really relate to you. So I'm really hopeful that we can do a lot more on the pipeline of who goes into the eating disorder profession and field, but frankly I think it's somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you don't have access to treatment um, as someone who carries a marginalized identity, you're less likely to recover and then you're less likely to go into the field, right? And so we need to be working at it from all, from all angles.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And so if someone is interested in joining Equip, what is that process like right now?
1: Yeah, uh, so as a patient or family, you can uh, go and sign up on our website, equip.health. We are uh, right now active in New York, New Jersey, California, Texas, Washington, and Oregon launch next month, and we have many states kind of uh, coming up soon, Um, and we are in network right now with Optum, Cigna, Horizon, and Kaiser uh, with more insurance companies to launch soon, including a couple of Medicaid plans, which we're super excited about. And then if you're interested in working with us, uh, we have open roles right now and continually growing for therapists, dietitians, MDs, and then peer mentors and family mentors. So really encourage folks to go to our website, equip.health to apply.
0: That's awesome. I have so enjoyed this conversation and um, I have you know my two questions that I'll ask you, but I just wanted to say how much I appreciate. Um, all the work that you're doing. And and this is really incredible. Thank
1: you, Mimi. I'm so, so excited to be here with you. And I I just think I'm so excited that you're here in the field. You're a true gift to the field. And and I so appreciate you making space for these conversations.
0: Thank you. And a fun question. Um, What are your favorite foods? Ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a big ice cream person. Uh, That is
1: is my go-to dessert basically every night. So whenever you wanna go out for ice cream with me, I'm down
0: yes um flavors uh brands there
1: is a malted milk from a place called tin pot in the bay area that is just the best thing that i have ever eaten so anybody in the bay area make your way to tin pot i'm definitely an (laughs) ice cream aficionados i can i can tell and then my husband and i recently discovered milk bar um but they have they have the pints in the freezer and there's one like it's a cookie dough base with marshmallows and like Kettle corn and brownies, it's just, it's unbelievable. So definitely suggest that one.
0: That's amazing. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna have to go pick some up today. That's awesome. That
1: whole, at least our Whole Foods had it, so.
0: <laughs> perfect, perfect. And last question, um, how are you becoming? How am I becoming? Um,
1: I think by always being honest, and vulnerable. Um, I think that that's you know been one of my superpowers from a very young age, and I think unintentionally sort of coming out as someone who's recovered from an eating disorder early has you know, attracted folks to me. I always talk about, it's really nice when you're open and vulnerable because it invites people to be open and vulnerable with you. And so I think that that's just been a real, a real unintended kind of benefit of, of all the work that I've done. Um, And I think it's, it's the best way to make change and to move things forward.
0: That's awesome. Thank you again. I appreciate you a lot.
1: I appreciate you too. This is so fun. Yay. I just love that our families get uh, two role models at least, right, just on their team. And then they have the entire equip team every day of recovery is possible, recovery is worth it. And there's something so powerful about like, you know, having your peer mentor sit down with you with a chocolate chip cookie, which is your biggest fear food and just like eating it with you, like no big deal. I I, under, I was totally there with you. And I understand like five years ago, this was my worst nightmare, but now it's like, oh great chocolate chip cookie.